Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Nancy Gibson will be doing our scripture reading today. If you'd open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, we're going to read verses 17 through 23. Ruth 2, 17 through 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said, to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Nancy, for reading, worship team for leading us this morning. Uh, Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help with that passage, and we'll continue in our series through Ruth. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. Uh, what, a, what a joy to be your sons and daughters uh, every day of the week, every day of the year. But, uh, oh, it's special on, on the Lord's Day when we get to gather with others and celebrate you, praise you, pray to you, uh, study your word together, fellowship with one another. Uh, so much good that goes on in this place as we encourage one another and build one another up uh, in the ways of Christ. I want to ask you to use this passage for that this morning. We pray that Jesus, I pray that Jesus would be high and lifted up in this text. It's an Old Testament text, but Christ is all over in it. And uh, I just uh, would ask you to use me and my frailty and weakness uh, to to speak of the strength and the and the, the glory of Jesus Christ and, and how he governs. It's in his name, Jesus' name, we pray today. Amen. If God wants me to play this season, I'll play this season. Uh, that's what Marcus Cannon told a writer for ESPN.com back in 2011. Uh, Cannon had just been picked in the NFL draft. He was selected in the fifth round of the draft, uh, but that was a lot lower, far lower than anyone had expected just a few weeks earlier. Uh, Cannon was expected to go in the first round that year. He'd played offensive tackle for Texas Christian University, and he was really good. And uh, you football fans know it's always hard to find a good tackle. And so uh, he had played offensive tackle. He'd started. He'd played all four years. He'd done fantastic. And now he was going into the draft. And uh, he was on most people's uh, list for who was going to go very early in the round. They expected to, he, he'd sign for millions of dollars and, and go in the first round. Uh, but then, just a few weeks before the draft, uh, some pre-draft medical tests revealed that Cannon had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, he'd had a lump in the lower part of his abdomen, and he'd already had it looked at back you know, months earlier. It had been looked at by some doctors, but they said, don't worry about it. It's just an infection. Nothing to worry 
worry about there. Uh, but as the draft was getting close, one of the teams that was looking very closely at him, they insisted he have it retested. So he went back. He said, do whatever you got to do to satisfy this team. And they, they did a biopsy. And well, when the biopsy came back, it was, it was bad news. That, that, wasn't an, that lump wasn't an infection. It, it was cancer, they told him. Well, as you can imagine, he was devastated. Marcus Cannon was devastated. Uh, it, it did occur to him at least... They found it, right? If it hadn't been for that insistence of that team, I think it was the Colts. If the Colts hadn't insisted he have it tested, uh, they probably wouldn't have found it this early. So he knew, he knew that was a blessing, but that did not change the fact that he figured his dream of playing in the NFL was done. I mean, that's it. Who's going to draft a player with cancer, right? Who's going to draft a player to play in the NFL? And so he was actually shocked. He was totally surprised. He actually went fishing on the second day of the draft. He used to think, nobody's going to call me. But on the third day of the draft, he got a call from the New England Patriots, uh, the Patriots, decided to take a chance on this guy. That's how good he was. Even though he had cancer, they decided to take the chance and draft him anyway. And as it turned out, the chance paid off. Um, his body responded well, right? It, it's Not everybody does, but his body responded very well to the treatments. The tumor shrank. His cancer went into remission. And he actually went on. Some of you football fans may recognize his name. He went on to have a pretty successful career playing uh, offensive line uh, most of his career with the Patriots, a little bit with the Texans, I think. Uh, in fact, technically, he's still playing, although I checked with my older son who follows this stuff closely. He said he's probably going to retire soon. But 10, 11, 12 years of, uh, of, of a solid, successful NFL career. He didn't know any of that, though. He didn't know any of that when he told that ESPN writer what I started with, when he said, if God wants me to play, I'll play. He had no idea where it was headed. Uh, that uh, reporter, the same reporter, uh, asked him, what did it feel like? What does it feel like to be dealing with all of this right now? What is it like to find out in the span of just a couple of weeks that you have cancer and that you've been drafted. You've been drafted by the NFL, by the Patriots, no less. And his answer, and this was all from that article in ESPN, his article was that it felt awesome. <laughs> there's a reason this happened, he said. Man of faith, clearly. at this. He's, he, there's a reason this happened, he said. I can almost see through the tunnel now. I can see the plan God has for me. That belief the belief that God has a plan and his plan is good. Even when we can't see the goodness of it, just like that last song we just sang, that belief that God has a plan and his plan is good, it has a name. Uh, that, and, that, and the doctrine is called providence. The name of that belief is providence. And it's what I'd like to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the providence of God. Now, if we're going to talk about the providence of God, the first thing we need to do is, is define it, right? What is it we're talking about? If we're going to talk about providence, we need to know what we're talking talking about. Uh, I could give you a, a textbook definition, and, and I think I'll do that, actually. I'm, I'm, let me put this up here. Uh, this is uh, from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Some of you have been studying that in our Sunday school class over the last couple of years. Um, we've kind of been doing it in spurts. Uh, this comes from Wayne Grudem, a theology textbook. The doc what is providence? It is the doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way, you don't have to write this down. It's a lot of words. I'll send it to you if you want it. Uh, in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And then three, he directs them, he directs everything to fulfill his purposes. That's uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic definition of providence. Uh, like I said, that's a lot of words. 
I would, I would simplify it a little bit. I'd simplify it this way. Providence is the, is the teaching that God is actively involved in the everyday life of every part of his creation. That's, that's providence. God is actively involved in the everyday life of every part of his creation, including us, including you and me. And it occurred to me, some, some might wonder, how is that different from sovereignty? Sometimes we use this term sovereignty. The difference between sovereignty and providence is that sovereignty describes his authority. So sovereignty is God's authority over everything. Providence is how he uses that authority. He uses that authority to care for his creation and, and to provide for, for his creation. So providence is really kind of a, the exercise of sovereignty, you might say. And so that's kind of what we're talking about this morning when I talk about providence. But, but here's the thing. Providence is more than just a theological concept. Really, what matters to us is that providence is personal. It's, it's a personal thing. And what I mean is it really does, this doctrine of providence, it gets to the heart of one of the fundamental questions that we have as Christians. And, and that question is, will God take care of me? Will God take care of me? That's really how providence becomes personal. Will God provide for my needs? And according to the book of Ruth, which we're studying this summer, according to the book of Ruth, the answer is yes. It, it's, 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 it features prominently in today's passage, but to be honest with you, it's, it's one of the meta messages, the major messages of the whole book. Yes, God will provide for your needs. It may not look the way we want, right? They may not look the way we wanted or expected. There might be twists and turns along the way, but yes, yes, you can trust the Lord to provide for your needs. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to go through uh, Ruth in the time we have to, uh, we're going to go through Ruth chapter two. And this is actually the second time through chapter two. We went through it the first time last week. So like I said last week, I, I didn't cover everything last week and I won't cover everything in the chapter this week. We kind of have to put the two together to get a, a fuller uh, treatment of chapter two. Uh, last week we went through chapter two and we focused mostly on Boaz and we kind of sort of did a character study on Boaz and talked about how he helps us understand God's love. This morning I want to focus on Ruth and I want to focus on Ruth through the lens of providence. And so we'll do two things here with Ruth this morning. First, I want to uh, take you to the key piece of evidence in, in this chapter and arguably in the whole book, the key piece of evidence for God's providence and show you that verse. And then I want to look at Ruth. We're going to look at Ruth's actions and what she does in this chapter and talk about what we can learn from her about trusting in the Lord. Because she's, we, we, we noted how she has come to the Lord in chapter one, and we don't know at what point that happened, but her, you know, Naomi's God has become her God. And, and so she's, she's a committed follower now. She's going to follow Yahweh. And what we see her doing now is living that out. She's going to put her trust in the providence of the Lord. And so we're going to actually look very practically at, at how she does that, what it looks like for her. And we'll talk about four steps, four steps that are involved for you and me when we trust the Lord to provide for our needs. So first providence and where we see it in the text, and then four steps for how we trust God. So let's get into that. Let's start with uh, the key evidence of providence here in chapter two. The key evidence is found in verse three. I want to draw our attention uh, here at the beginning to verse three. Verse three says, so she, the she is, uh, is Ruth, uh, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, or as the NIV puts it, I like the NIV uh, here, NIV says, as it turned out, as it turned out. 
Now, in Hebrew, if you look at this, this verse in Hebrew, remember, of course, Ruth was written originally in Hebrew. If you look at it in Hebrew, it, it's kind of clumsy, actually, for an English speaker. Because what it says in, in, in Hebrew is, her happening happened. So as it turned out, her happening happened, which uh, doesn't make a lot of sense in English, which is why we get translations like she happened or as it turned out. But in, in Hebrew, it makes perfect sense because in Hebrew, what you have here in Hebrew is an idiom. So her happening happened is a Hebrew idiom. Now you say, what's a, an idiom? An idiom uh, is a, a group of words that have a special meaning in a specific language. And that meaning cannot be understood just from looking at the words in the idiom. So you don't get the meaning of an idiom from the actual words in the idiom. Uh, you get it from just the meaning that it has. So you just have to know it. Somebody's just got to teach you what the idiom means for you to understand it. I'll give you an example in English. Uh, in, in English, we talk about having a nest egg. Right? You, you know, if you're going to save for the future, you're going to build up your nest egg. But if you think about your nest egg, there's no nest and there's no eggs, right? It's, it's, it's a bank account, usually, where you've got your savings stored. So nest egg is an idiom. There's no nest, there's no eggs, there's no birds involved. It's, it's an idiom for your savings, the savings that you have. You call that an, an idiom. Uh, we have an idiom, a Hebrew idiom here in verse 3. Her happening happened in such a way. So what does it mean? It becomes important to us. What does, what does that idiom mean in Hebrew? Well, the answer is that it is a way to describe the providence of God. It is an idiom for God's providence. So, and here's why this is so important, because to English listeners, especially that NIV, which I like the wording of it, but, but you, actually a couple of the other translations do this too, you could almost conclude she just got lucky. Right? She just, she just happened. She just got lucky. She just went to the right field, the field that happened to be owned, owned by, by Boaz. But that's not the biblical understanding of how things work. There is no luck in a biblical worldview. And, and so her happening happened means God did it. And so it's a way to say the Lord directed her steps. The Lord directed her steps to the field of Boaz. And you see this, this broader principle that the Lord is the one who directs things uh, all over the place in Scripture. So, so Psalm 135, verse 6, uh, the Lord does whatever pleases him uh, in the heavens and on the earth and the seas and in all their depths. Uh, sometimes people will read that verse as if it's kind of like God's a spoiled child and he does whatever he wants. That's not the point of that verse. That verse is saying he is providentially governing, right? The Lord does what pleases him everywhere. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 14, the Lord makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, right? Well, you, you guys all do your work, but, but, but he's the one who's, who's providentially making it happen. Proverbs 16, 33, uh, even what looks like luck to us is not luck. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, we might say the, 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 the gambler rolls the dice, but whatever that comes up, uh, it's what the Lord wanted to have happen. And that's what verse 3 means, that idiom, when, when it says, as it turned out, her happening happened. It's saying the Lord did this. The Lord brought Ruth to the field of Boaz. Which means, in terms of the message, here's why I say this is the key verse here. What this is telling us is that everything that's going to happen from this point on, and from up to this point too, in this little book, it's all flowing out of the providence of God. All the good stuff that's going to unfold, all the challenges that, for, that came before, it's, it's all been under his guiding care. Right? Of all the fields Ruth might have gone to, the Lord led her to this one. 
Uh, it's been said that there's no such thing as a coincidence, right? And we as believers especially understand that. For believers, there's no such thing as, as a coincidence. And, and that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. There is no such thing as coincidences. There's no good luck or bad luck. There's, there's only providence. There's only the providential hand of God. The things that happen, like we sang, the good and the bad, uh, they happen as a result of what God is doing, his active involvement in our everyday lives. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about providence, right? The, 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 God's, the Lord's active engagement, his active involvement in our everyday lives. So let's switch gears now. Right? Given that this is true, right? and I, some, some may be kind of wrestling with that still, that's okay, keep wrestling. It's a, it's a big doctrine. It's a, it's a hard one, especially when we're talking about the hard things we face. I'm not wrestling with in this book. So, so I'm not telling you you got to kind of accept it 100% here, although it, it is what the scriptures teach. But as you're wrestling with that, let's switch gears and talk about what it looks like to trust God then. So given that this doctrine is taught in Scripture, if he is providentially guiding everything, well then what's it going to look like for you and me to trust him to take care of us? What's that going to look like in our everyday lives? Well, that brings us to those steps that we see as we follow along with Ruth. Number one, step number one is that we we need to admit our need. It starts with, Lord, I need you, right? We we cannot trust the Lord to provide if we're coming from a place where we're going to provide for ourselves, right? If if, If our message to God and to ourselves and to the world around us is, I got this, I can take care of this, we're, we're kind of, we're the block. We're, we're in the way. And so we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge we need the Lord. We, we see this in the pattern that we, we, we glean, pun intended, we glean from, from Ruth in this text. So that's where it all begins for, for in chapter in chapter two, verse two. <clears throat> it starts with Ruth and Naomi with her, <clears throat> excuse me, admitting their need. We'll go back to verse two. We covered verse one last week when we talked about uh, Boaz. Uh, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So last week we talked about gleaning, and we said that gleaning was the, the cultural provision, and it's affirmed in Scripture, so it's a biblical provision in, 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 under the law for taking care of the poor. Right, so they didn't, have, they didn't have a welfare system, they didn't have social service agencies or nonprofits or charities like we have. Instead, what you had was this custom of, of allowing the poor to harvest the edges of other people's fields. And so they were able to harvest the edges and, and the corners. That was the emphasis in the scripture, the, the edges and the corners. And then they could also comb through the fields afterwards. After all the harvesting was done, they could go through all those harvesters were pretty efficient. So really that, that edges and the, and the corners was the most important part. And so you wouldn't get a lot, but you'd get some, right? And, and that portion, according to scripture, belongs to the poor. It is by right theirs. Leave that portion for the poor. God's people were told. But here's the thing about gleaning. When you go out to glean, you are acknowledging that you're poor. You're you're embracing that status. And that requires humility because what it meant doing was swallowing your pride and saying, this is me. This is who I am. I'm a person who needs to go and glean. And this is exactly what Ruth and Naomi are facing here in, in this chapter. They, that's, it starts for them from simply having to admit that they, ha- that they have this need. And, and this must have been especially hard for Naomi. The text doesn't dwell on it, but, but this, this has got to be hard for her. Uh, one of the commentators I was looking at uh, calls this the rock bottom moment for Naomi. Right? This, is, this is rock bottom. When, when Elimelech was alive, she was provided for. 
right? When her husband was still alive, whether they were in Moab or they were in Bethlehem, she was taken care of. She was provided for. Uh, we, in fact, we learn later in the book that Elimelech had land, right? This whole drama with, with Ruth and Boaz that's going to unfold in the second half of the book. There's land at stake here. So Elimelech was a landowner, well, a landowner, which means um, you know, they didn't really do middle class the way our, our economy and culture does, but if they had a middle class, they would have been in it. Uh, he, he, they were not poor when they left. Just a couple of words, but this is Naomi saying, yep, yep, that's me. We, this is what we've sunk to. I'm, I'm someone who desperately needs uh, help. And then, of course, Ruth is doing this too. I don't think the stakes are as high for Ruth because she's come, she's come from another place and she's younger, but, but she's doing the same thing. She is, she's humbling herself as she goes out into the fields to glean. And as we think about ourselves trusting in God's provision, there's a spiritual principle here because this is where it starts for all of us. <laughs> Whatever the need is in our particular case, it starts with saying, Lord, I can't handle this on my own. I can't do this by myself. I don't have the, the resources or the knowledge or the know-how or the strength or the time or the money or whatever it is that I, I, I need to get this thing done right now. I don't have it, Lord. The emotional resources, I don't have it. Lord, I need you. I need you to provide for my needs. And so what does it look like to trust in the Lord's provision? It starts with admitting our need. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. We humble ourselves before him. Number two that we see here in this text, the second step we, we need to take is to take action. So trusting the Lord involves taking action. So we, we, yes, we, we start out in this position of humility and, and recognizing and accepting our need and, and really just kind of confessing that to him and bringing that need to him. But that doesn't mean we're done, right? And it doesn't mean we get all passive and just kind of like, you know, sit back and like, okay, God, go ahead, you know, fix it for me. Uh, on the contrary, the next step is we get out there with bold faith. We, we step out in faith and start, you know, you start moving in a direction and, and see what, what God's going to do and how he's going to provide. And that's what we see with Ruth. This is what Ruth does. Uh, she does not just sit back and do nothing. She takes action. She's a bold woman. She takes action here. Um, we see this in verse two, right? She's the one. I mentioned this in passing last week. She's the one. She goes to Naomi. Even though Naomi's the, the superior in the relationship, she's the mother-in-law. Uh, this is her place. But Ruth grabs the initiative. She goes to Naomi. She says, let me go glean. And remember, we, we, we dwelt on this a little bit. Uh, she has lots of reasons not to Right? She has, she's, she's a stranger. She doesn't know anybody. <laughs> she's a foreigner. You know, she knows she's, at least some of these folks aren't going to like her because she's a Moabite. So she's a stranger. She's a foreigner. She's a woman in a society that is prone to violence sometimes. It's not clear how bad Bethlehem was, but still it's not the safest thing to go out by yourself like this. All those obstacles, she goes anyway. She says, let me go out to the fields. Let me go out there. And so it's a bold thing to do. We also see her, her boldness uh, and, and really here, the first one is kind of boldness before people, but, but the second one is, is her boldness before God in her expectation. Look what she's looking for as she goes out. She, she hopes to find someone, again, this is in verse two, someone in whose sight I shall find favor. I'm going to go out there, but I'm not just going to kind of go to the first field where I, I come to or whatever. Her, her, in her mindset, she's got big expectations here. I'm going to go find someone in whose sight, in whose eyes I find favor. Uh, in whose eyes I find favor, whose sight I find favor. It's, it's another idiom, actually. It's another Hebrew idiom. And what it means when, you're, when you talk about finding favor in someone's eyes, 
what you're talking about is that it's a blessing from God. If we read that phrase through the lens of Scripture, and we talk about finding, uh, finding um, grace, or what, what's her term? Uh, finding, or finding favor in someone's sight. The idea is that that favor is coming from the Lord. And so it comes through a person, but it comes from the Lord. One of the best examples from another passage to show this is uh, back in, in Genesis, actually. So in Genesis, I'm going to kind of hope there's a little bit of familiarity with this story, but it, it, you, or you could go read it. Genesis 39, uh, actually in Genesis 38, you meet a young man named Joseph. Joseph is one of the sons of, of Israel, and he ends up being a slave. He ends up, through a long series of things, he ends up uh, a slave in Egypt, but the guy he's enslaved to, this guy named Potiphar, elevates Joseph to head of his house. He makes Joseph in charge of his whole staff. He's like chief of staff in this, um, this uh, I believe he's a military officer, I remember right, Potiphar. His whole house is now answer for answers to his former slave, Joseph. And jo- Genesis 39, 4 explains how that happens. Uh, it was because Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar. It's the exact same phrase we find here in Ruth. Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar. And in the context of that chapter, if you go read Genesis 38, 39, 40, it's very, very clear that God is the one who's giving this favor. It is from the Lord. That's how Joseph understands it when you read through that part of Genesis. And so, yeah, Joseph was a bright guy. Uh, He was a hard worker, but that's not why Potiphar puts him in charge of the house. Potiphar puts him in charge of the house because the Lord granted him favor in Potiphar's eyes. And so that's what, when Ruth says this, we read this as people who know the Bible, we've read Genesis, we understand how this phrase is used. When Ruth says, this is what I'm going out to find, we understand what she's looking for. She's looking for God to provide, right? She's not surprised when the Lord directs her steps. She's looking to him to provide. She is boldly trusting that the Lord will grant her favor. Her boldest action, though, the place where we really see her bold faith is is what she actually asks for when she gets to this field. And you see it in verse 7. I talked about it a little bit last week, and I want to talk about it some more this morning. Verse 7, Boaz uh, arrives to inspect his fields. So you get the impression he's got some different fields, and he comes to this one. So Boaz arrives to inspect his fields. He sees Ruth. And, you know, everybody else he knows, but there's this young woman he doesn't recognize. And so he goes to his foreman, the guy who's in charge, and he asks, who who is she? Tell me about this unidentified woman standing around here in the field. What's she up to? The foreman says she's here to glean, right? So that's no big surprise. I mean, again, this is to be expected. It's the harvest. Yes, people come to glean. So why is she standing there? Why isn't she gleaning? Well, she wants to glean among the sheaves after the reapers. Right? She wants to glean among the sheaves close to, that's what that idea of after, after the reapers. I explained last week that this is a bold request. This is a bold thing to ask. She has a right to glean on the edges. There's almost a sense in which she doesn't even need to ask permission for that one. Right? It's not clear to me that she even needed to ask permission to glean on the edges. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. The Bible says that's her right to glean over there. But that's not what Ruth wants. She's asking bigger. She wants to glean where the action is. And I just, I think, I don't know how else to interpret this uh, than as a bold faith in the Lord. She wants to follow on the heels of the harvesters and pick up after them. Why? Because the barley is better there and there's more of it. The barley is better, right? She's not getting the leftovers. She's, she's asking for, I said it last week, the owner's portion. And so uh, it's a bold request because she's asking permission to, uh, to take 
not the poor's portion, but the owner's portion. I'd like to submit to you this morning that I think we have a beautiful picture here of how God wants us to approach him, right? We're not beggars on the corners of his fields. We're his sons and daughters. He invites us to come in and ask for the owner's portion. I, mean, that, I think that's what we have here. And, and sometimes we, we lose sight of that. Sometimes some of us, maybe not all of us are guilty of this, but I think I am. So maybe I'm the only one in the room who needs to hear this. But sometimes our prayers are too small. They're too timid. We just ask for the little stuff that we know God can handle. And we don't bother him with the big stuff that might be a stretch for him, right? Almost as if our thinking is, thinks that way, right? So we, we kind of keep the big things to the side. We just kind of cross our fingers and hope they're going to work. Or worse, we don't ask at all. And I think what we see in Ruth here is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to, to, to ask big, to pray big. And we're not talking about name it and claim it. He, he may well say, just because you name it doesn't mean you can claim it. He may well say no. But, but he, he invites us to be bold like Ruth is bold here. So we need to trust him to provide not just the little things, but to trust in the big things too. And we have a, we have a picture here of how his providence works that way. So, so admit our need, come to him in humility, but then take action, step out. Pray big and then start moving in, in that way, in that direction. <clears throat> but we're only halfway there. So number three, step number three is that we need to wait. <laughs> we need to wait on the Lord. And so we need bold faith, but we also need patient faith. Now, I know it sounds like I'm contradicting number two. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing here? You just told us to be bold and take action. Now we're talking about waiting on the Lord. What's going on? And my only answer to that is it's just what we see in Scripture. We see both in Scripture. It's just how it works in God's economy. Uh, Yes, trusting Him means acting with bold faith and trusting Him, but then having acted, sometimes it also means waiting patiently, waiting patiently for Him to provide. And we see this this heart, this waiting uh, in, in Ruth. We see it here in this text. It's just a little snapshot. Uh, some might even accuse me of bordering on allegory here, but I just, I, it's, it's so clear to me that this is what she does. She asks boldly, and then she waits. Uh, go back again to uh, form the, the foreman, so Boaz and his manager. Uh, Boaz comes, what's, going, what's the deal here? The foreman explains. Uh, she's asked permission to glean up here with the harvesters. And then he, he tells his boss what she's been doing ever since. Right? So this is uh, verse 7. I'll read the whole verse now. We kind of alluded to it a moment ago, but it's a key verse. Um, so this is the, the uh, foreman explaining. The guy in charge of the reapers is explaining what Ruth said. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, a lot of us take that last part of the verse, the second half of the verse, uh, we, we take that to be saying that Ruth was working when Boaz arrives, right? I mean, that's most certainly how a lot of us picture it. Uh, Boaz arrives, she's there, she's gleaning. Um, in fact, one of the major translations even translates it that way. I think it's the New Living Translation, um, which New NLT says she has been hard at work. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. That's uh, how the New Living Translation interprets that. And, and, and that it does it that way because that's how a lot of us picture this scene. She's working, Boaz comes, and then he gives her permission to do what she's already doing. It's, it's a little awkward if you start to think about it. But, but on that interpretation, she comes, she asks to glean, and then she starts working, and she's been working ever since, which is the impression you get there. The problem with that wording, which is what I just pointed out, is that the the actual language is more nuanced. It's more nuanced than that because the text doesn't say she worked. It doesn't actually use anything. It doesn't use any of the words. It doesn't use the harvest. It doesn't use the 
the verb glean. It doesn't use the verb work. It doesn't use any of those verbs. The verb it uses is continued. She continued. And uh, one translation, a couple of translations, I think, use the word remained. And so the question becomes, continued what? What is it she continued to do from that moment when she asked for permission to glean up until the moment when Boaz arrived to, to, to decide on her request? What is it she continued to do? Well, I would submit to you the answer is she, she waited. That's actually one of the meanings of that word, she continued, is quite simply she waited. And you see this in the New American Standard. I, I th- so I would say, I don't know if anybody uses New American Standard these days, but um, it's a very kind of sometimes so literal, it's wooden translation, but that helps us sometimes because NAS says, uh, she asked to let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house. Look what it does with that last part of the verse. NAS says, she's been sitting in the house for a little while. So I think what we're supposed to, we're meant to see here is that Ruth came, she made a request, and then she said, I'll wait. I want to, I want to glean among the owner's portion. Is he here? No, he's not here yet. I'll wait. And where does she wait? She goes and waits in the shelter. And there's a, they, they would have had these like little makeshift shelters where you could go in and get a break from the sun. So she's not going to stand in the sun. She's going to stand in the shelter, but she's been waiting until Boaz arrives. And the reason she's waiting, again, we talked about this a good bit last week. The reason she's waiting is that Boaz is the only one who can give her permission to do what she wants, which is take from the owner's portion. He's the owner, so only he can give her permission to do that. And so she doesn't know his name yet, and he doesn't know her name yet, but it's a beautiful setup for the second half of the story because what she's waiting for is Boaz. I mean, she's waiting for the Lord's provision, but concretely, in, in terms of the level down here that we can see, she's waiting for Boaz. And it is, it's a, it's a beautiful picture to us of what it looks like when we find ourselves in these situations. And some, you know, it comes and goes, and sometimes we're doing it all more than other t- seasons, but it's, it's what it looks like to, to trust in the Lord's provision. We come, we make the request, Lord, I, this, this is what's going on. This is what my kids are going through or what I'm going through. This is this need we have. Here's what's happening in the fields this year, Lord, whatever the need is. And, and sometimes he acts right away. Right? Hopefully we've all seen instances like that. We, he, we make the prayer, we make the request, we, we bring the need to him. Sometimes he answers right away, he does that. But sometimes, we all know too well, sometimes he makes us wait. He makes us wait. And we don't know why he's making us wait. We don't know how long he's going to make us wait. We don't know what it's going to look like when the waiting is over. But what we do have is a promise. It's not here. Here it's pictured for us, but it's a promise like uh, Philippians 4.19 puts it so well. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. We have that. We have that promise. My God will meet all your needs. And so we have that promise. And so when we're in those places, when we're in those seasons, Ruth gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like. Ask bold, bring it to the Lord, and then wait, wait patiently on the Lord's provision. That's a big part of it. It's a big part of trusting him is to, to, to wait, to make ourselves wait. Finally, number four, the fourth step uh, that we see in this text is we need to give God the glory. Give him the glory. Right, and whatever form the provision does take, even as we're waiting for it, in fact, but especially after it comes, uh, we need to acknowledge that it's his. Right, it's a core part of the Christian life. I put the word gratitude up here. Uh, we need to acknowledge and celebrate that he's the one who provided for us. And this is so important because sometimes, can I say maybe even a lot of the time, the Lord's provision is, I'll use the word hidden, right? This is why this gratitude issue is so important for us because a lot of times you wouldn't necessarily look and say, oh, wow, that was God. And what I, what I, what I mean when I say that is sometimes our miraculous God works in ways that are surprisingly mundane, yeah, he can do miracles, but a lot of times it's, it's just mundane. Yes, sometimes he parts the seas, 
right? Read Exodus uh, 14, 15 in there. Yeah, sometimes he opens up the ocean. Sometimes he multiplies the fish and the loaves. But most of the time, he just provides good enough weather for a decent harvest or a job to cover the bills or a friend who can help us over a rough spot or, or a man like Boaz, a follower of the Lord who's obedient to the Lord's word and going out of his way to live out his faith in his everyday life, which is what we talked about a lot last week was what we see here with Boaz. And so that's what the Lord does for Ruth. There aren't a lot of miracles, right? The closest you get to a miracle is verse 3. As it turned out, that's about the only miracle you get in the book of Ruth. And yet the Lord is over it all. Right? And so that's what you see with Ruth. She finds exactly what she said she was looking for. Right? That favor she talked about back in verse 2. She finds it. The Lord gives it to her. The Lord gives her permission through Boaz. So, so Boaz gives her permission to glean from his own portion of the field. And so she, you know, she admits her need. She asks boldly. She waits on the Lord. And the Lord gives her what she's looking for. He, he provides for her that permission to, to glean where she wants to. And she's grateful. Right? She's very grateful. Uh, she actually thanks Boaz twice. I'm going to read it in just a moment. But first in verse 10 and then again in verse 13, she's, she's, she's just grateful. You just see her gratitude here. But what I really love is actually the way Boaz gives all the credit to the Lord. So Ruth, in a position, she's in a position of humility here, and just even socially, she's on this guy's field. So we're going to see she, she bows to him. Think of it more as a curtsy. It's not bowing in worship or anything. It's more of just kind of a, a, a sign of respect to him. But when she asks him to explain why he's doing this, he points up. Right, so so let, me, let me read it. This would be such a great place for Boaz to say, well, I did it because I'm such a great guy. <laughs> it's not what he says. Uh, verse 10, I'll read 10 through 13. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I think that's thank you, number one. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So she says, why are you treating me so well? And he answers, I'm treating you well because of how well you've been treating your mother-in-law. I heard about how you've, you've been with Naomi and how you wouldn't abandon her. And you know what he says? This isn't Boaz, this is the Lord. Now the Lord is repaying you. It's right there in verse 12. The Lord is repay you. The Lord repay you for what you've done. This is from him, Boaz says, not me. And so yes, Boaz is generous, right? I, I, on, the, on the human plane, looking at it with our eyes, Boaz is generous. But even Boaz understands that his generosity is actually the provision of God. God himself is using Boaz himself. He's just being faithful. But the Lord gets all the credit. The Lord gets all the, all the glory. That's Boaz's attitude. But the clincher, the clincher for this God-centered way of looking at this exchange is that Naomi sees it. Naomi sees it too. And, and that's what you get in the last movement of chapter two. Uh, the work day finally ends. Uh, Ruth goes back to Naomi. Uh, as we said uh, last week, I talked about how much that ephah is. That ephah of barley is about a bushel basket. Imagine a bushel basket, a bushel of processed barley, which is enough food for a month or two weeks for the two of them. So it's a very good take for a day's worth of gleaning by one woman. Uh, she brings it back. Naomi is impressed. That's another clue to us how much, how successful her gathering was. Naomi's impressed. Uh, I'll read it, verses 19 through uh, 20, half of 20. 
Uh, And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi says two important things there, in, uh, especially in that verse 20. The first is that she basically prays the Lord will bless Boaz, right? May he be blessed by the Lord. Uh, he's been generous to us, and now may the Lord be generous to him. May the Lord bless him as he's blessed us. So there's this wonderful prayer of blessing on Boaz. The second thing she says, though, I think is even more significant. The second thing she says is, I was wrong about the Lord. Right, those of you who were worried about Naomi, because it was rough back in chapter 1. She, she, I was wrong, she says. Right, do you remember chapter 1, verse 21? Uh, the Lord has afflicted me, <laughs> Naomi said. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. That was what she thought about God back in chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 20, is her formal retraction. This is her formal retraction. I was wrong. The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to me after all. That idea of living in the dead. She means herself and she means even her ancestors. She's talking about Elimelech and Malon and Kilion that are the, the living in the dead. He's not stopped being kind to us after all. And in case you didn't already guess, uh, that word kindness in verse 20, it's chesed. It's that Hebrew word I told you about a few weeks ago. I told you it only shows up three times, even though it's the main theme, one of the main themes of this little book. Uh, God's loving faithfulness, his loving kindness. This is the second time the, the word is used, and each one of them is significant. And so she sees it. Yes, he, he hasn't turned his back on us. Oh, he was working all along. He is faithful to us. I was wrong. And so the Lord changes her mind. Naomi's mind is changed, and as a result, what does she do? She gives him all the credit. It's, it, it's the Lord that's done this. Right? The Lord is the one who does this. Yeah, Boaz played a part. But this is the Lord's loving kindness. This is the Lord's goodness to me and to you, she says. That's the mindset we need to have. We need to to approach it the same way. When the Lord provides for us, when that provision does come, whether it's sooner or later, whether it's miraculous or mundane, give him the glory. Give him the glory when the provision comes. Give him thanks. That's why I think Thanksgiving, it's not a a holy holiday, or it's not a a religious holiday, but it might be one of the holiest ones. I mean, it's, just, it's such a core part of what it's about for us as believers. Give him the praise. Give him the credit. Be like Naomi in this text. Tell anyone who will listen. Hey, look what God did. Look what the Lord did for me. Look at how he provided for my needs. A few weeks ago, I, I mentioned a book about Ruth that I recommend to you. It's called A, a Sweet and Bitter Providence. It was written by a guy named John Piper. And uh, you can actually get an electronic version. His ministry gives it away for free. You can go find it online. We gave you the link in the Bible app. But, uh, he, and, but he, he talks about this issue a good bit in that book, uh, Providence. And somewhere in the middle of the book, he, he talks about Providence this way, in terms of this part of the story. He says, life is not a straight line. So these are Piper's words. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. It's not. Life is not, I'll read it again. Life is not a straight line leading from, leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life rather is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, but feel in our bones that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes 
for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a question, and then we'll pray. And the question is, where do you need to trust the Lord? Where do you need to trust in his provision today? Uh, Maybe it's something financial, just like in this text, right? For Ruth and Naomi, it is very concrete, very personal, it's very financial. They, They need to eat. And maybe it's something like that for you. But the, but the truth is, God's providence is not limited to our finances. I would be uh, neglectful if I left you with the impression that the doctrine of providence only applies to getting our bills paid and our stomachs filled. Uh, it applies to everything. Uh, we'll see that even here in Ruth. Even here in Ruth, God's just getting warmed up. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, they have some other needs too, relational needs, social needs, and the Lord's going to provide for them big time in that way as well. And that, that's true for us as well. And so maybe your need is a financial one, but maybe it's medical, or maybe it's a, a mental health issue, or maybe it's a strained relationship, or maybe you're just stuck on, on a problem in your parenting or in your, your marriage. Uh, you know, it's a relationship issue that way. Maybe it's a friendship thing. Uh, maybe you need guidance, right? Maybe you've, you've reached a crossroads. That happens sometimes along the way, especially when you're younger, but it happens to all of us. Uh, you know, you need guidance. You've reached some sort of a crossroads. You can't see which way to go, what comes next. And so you need his provision in that way. But whatever it is, Whatever it is that you need, please know that you can trust him. You can trust the Lord to provide for you in that area of need.